0: Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm sure you're familiar with this quote. It says, We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and is teaching in our past history. And it's my privilege to share with you a little bit of how he has led us and how he has taught us in our past history. And while I am going to be able to relate some history to you, it's only God's Spirit that's going to be able to make that history effectual for us, And so I'm asking if you would please be gracious to join me just for a moment in prayer as we ask him to do that. Father, you have chosen the most unprofitable of servants to be your messenger. And my, my request this morning is not for your servant, but for your people. That this message might be effectual. That you might be lifted up for what you have done. And that we might cooperate with you to allow you to continue to work through us towards your honor and towards your glory. And I thank you for hearing that need that we have today. In Jesus' name. Amen. look a little at the history of educational development in our denomination, particularly within our supporting ministry area, we need to understand a little bit about the background of Edward A. Sutherland. E.A. Sutherland um, played a pivotal role in education in our denomination, both within the de- organized denominational educational work and particularly in the development and founding of our self-supporting work. And to really understand Ed Sutherland, we need to roll back a couple of generations. And so we're going to start with Ed Sutherland's grandfather. His grandfather was educated in Scotland for the Presbyterian ministry. He emigrated to Canada and then moved to southwest Wisconsin. Now, it happens to be that in rural southwest Wisconsin, there's not a great deal of demand for the teaching of Greek or Latin. And so it, it actually befell to Edward's grandmother to provide the majority of support for the family of 12 there in Wisconsin. And that fact appears to have been a point of contention with Ed's father, Joseph. Joseph was refused the ability to serve in the military during the uh, war between the states. So he stayed home and worked on the farm and in the process got to know a, a neighboring farm family, the Rankin family. The Rankins had 8 redheaded girls. And Joseph took a liking to one of them and married the oldest, Mary Rankin. It was in early 19- 1865 that they started a journey to Entronto, Iowa to be able to create an independent future for themselves. Now, I think it's interesting, in that same area of Iowa, was a growing population of Advent believers. I don't know that that was why they headed there, although I find it a most interesting coincidence, and it's not long after that, that we find that Joseph had joined the Adventist church, probably very much under the influence of his wife, for the Rankins were very early and very solid Advent believers. Uh, They only got as far as the Mississippi River. There's a place there next to the Mississippi called Prairie du Chien. For those of you who know French, you know know I just slaughtered it, but it's something on the the order of Dog Prairie. Uh, They were waiting their turn to get across the river by various accounts. One of them says they were on the bridge but hadn't made it to the midway point when PA made his entrance into the world, and so on March 3, 1865, he was born in Wisconsin, barely, on his way to Iowa. Ed early learned the value of work. He, uh, as a young man, this is Prairie du Chien, uh, as a young man, very young man, he herded cows with his sister for a summer. As a result of that summer, he and his sister earned 35 cents. And he managed to keep those 35 cents through the winter. At his father's encouragement, he invested them into onion sets. He tended that little onion garden through the next growing season, sold them at the end of the season for a healthy profit, and that was his first business adventure. The the year after he graduated from high school, he taught school for a year. He rode his pony mouse. I'm not quite sure why a pony was called mouse, but he rode his pony mouse back and forth to school. And uh, he learned a great deal that year as he attempted to teach those budding scholars. He learned a great deal about himself and what he didn't know about teaching generated in him a desire to continue his own education. That next summer, he went up to Wisconsin, and he, I'm sorry, not Wisconsin, Minnesota. He went up to Minnesota and callported in Minnesota, living in the home of Josephine Gatzian. Josephine Gotzian had recently become an Adventist and had also recently been widowed. Those are not related activities, by the way. And uh, with her newfound faith, she opened her home to young people who were canvassing and allowed them to live in her home as they shared the message through the printed word. Ed went out of his way to try and and get along with his benefactress, who it turns out was um, something of a penny pincher, although she was quite well-to-do. Uh, She insisted, for instance, on going clear across town to get the milk because it was a few pennies cheaper over there. But he faithfully went each day across town to get the milk and come back. He took good care of her carriage horse. And she really appreciated Ed and his efforts to to work in and around the home, to be a part of, of the home setting. And he would have very little inkling at this point just how beneficial that was going to turn out to be. Now, while he was canvassing, he discovered that John Harvey Kellogg was wanting to start a new medical, pre-medical program at Battle Creek. It would be a one-year training in uh, natural remedies, if you would, before he would sponsor a young man to go on to medical school and then to work in the sanitarium there in Battle Creek. Ed wanted very much to become a part of this program. However, his father was just about as determined that he would not. For his father, if you remember, still had this attitude towards his grandfather and a useless, highly educated person. He just felt there was no good use for higher education. Well, Ed was determined that this is what he needed to do. So he sold his Pony Mouse in order to obtain the funds to go to Battle Creek and enter into the program. There was only one other problem. When he got to Battle Creek, he discovered the program had been canceled because he was one of only two people that had responded to it. And for lack of a number of, of students, they canceled the program. Well, he was now in Battle Creek. It was the center of Adventist learning at the time, and he wasn't going to lose the opportunity so he began to study with Professor Goodloe Bell. Professor Bell um, taught Edward primarily English grammar. It was an area in which he felt a lack because of his year of teaching. And so he was studying grammar with Professor Bell, but he learned a number of other things from Professor Bell because Professor Bell had some really interesting ideas about education. One of them was that he felt that the Bible should be the foundation of the principles of education. That everything that we teach should have a foundation in Scripture. Did we hear anything about that recently? We've been privileged in this symposium to have that repeatedly presented to us. For it is in Scripture that we must find our foundation as a people. Well, Goodloe Bell felt that anything that you taught should be able to be traced back to a foundation in biblical principle. He also felt that head learning was not the extent of learning. He thought you should also be able to do something practical. And so he'd study with Ed for half a day, and then half a day they'd go out and they'd work. And so Ed continued to develop a solid work ethic in addition to fine-tuning his educational skills. Now, in spite of his family's disapproval, of his pursuit of college, he determined to come back home and to work on the family farm, which he did. He helped his father with the harvest at the end of that year, and to the objection of the other farm workers and his mother, his father placed him in the position of the straw monkey. Well, I didn't know what a straw monkey was, and I'm guessing that some of you might not, it's the guy at the end of the threshing machine that has to take the straw and pitch it up onto the, the uh, I'm trying to say hay bale, it's not a bale, the, the pile of hay, hay stack, the hay stack, keeping the threshing machine clear of, of this, the straw that's coming off of the threshing process. It's considered to be the hardest job on the, on the crew for bringing in the crop well Edwards muscles were soft and the work was hard as was his father but he determined to get through the season and he prayed and sang his way through at the end of the season his father shared with him well I guess you've got the right stuff in you you can go to college Edward returned to Battle Creek to further his education, this time with his father's blessing, and it was during this time as a student that young Edward came to the attention of W.W. Prescott, who at the time was the president of the college. This was another relationship that was destined to flourish as Prescott became a mentor to Edward and a champion of the reforms that Edward would be bringing to Adventist education. At the beginning of his junior year in 1888, he befriended a new arrival to the college. Percy McGann came from Ireland. Percy had been invited to live for a time in the home of Mrs. White. And Percy and Ed began to spend considerable time that year with Mother White as they came to know her and and called her throughout their lives. Percy at this time was 19, Edward was 23. Ellen was now widowed, she was 61. And it's no chance circumstance that placed these three individuals together in the fall of 1888. Does that date ring a bell with you? You might recall that in 1888 there was a renewed emphasis on righteousness by faith in Jesus alone. It was being brought by Jones and Wagner. Mother White referred to the teaching as the third angel's message in verity. Percy attended those meetings by Jones and Wagner. However, Edward did not have the opportunity to actually be present in those meetings. He learned through Percy and through Mother White. And though younger than Ed, Percy taught Ed many things. For example, Ed soon discovered Percy had a religious experience that he didn't know. Percy had already yielded his life entirely to God's leading and accepted the message of righteousness by faith in Jesus without question and without reservation. And little by little, Percy would be leading Edward into that same experience. Through the winter, the boys also observed Mother White. They marked her self-sacrificing life, her simple home, the peace and the joy that, that just spilled over to everyone in the household. They came to know her standards for living and her selfless concern for the growing work. There were many Adventists at this time who considered that the testimonies there were many Adventists at this time who considered that the testimonies were personal messages, but not general counsel. Uh, a person would say, Edward, Edward told later, a person would, would pick up the, the testimonies and would, would read a passage from the testimonies and then put it back on the shelf and, and say to themselves, boy, I'm really glad that wasn't written to me. And uh, a couple of summers later, Percy began reading some of those testimonies to Edward, and, and Edward later recalled this. He said, There came to me the acid test. Do you believe in righteousness by faith? Are your sins forgiven because Christ's offer has been accepted? Or do you strive to attain righteousness by your own works? And Edward did finally accept that message as, As being for him personally, the message of righteousness by faith in Jesus and that the counsels that God was giving to Mother White were generally applicable and so they were applicable to him. And it was a a conviction that he held for the rest of his life. The boys learned to value this incredible gift that God has given to his remnant people. The conviction that the revelations came directly from God struck deep into the boys' hearts and would direct their future activities. Well, there's more that Ed's going to learn from Percy and we'll continue with that, but let's pause here to just do a quick recap. What are lessons that Ed has learned? One, he's learned sacrifice, as he gave up his beloved pony mouse to be able to go to school. He's learned humble service in the home of Mrs. Gotzian. He's learned the principles of education from Professor Bell. He's learned about hard work under trying circumstances with his dad. He's learned about righteousness by faith from Mother White and and how to make it a personal living experience from Percy. He's learned about God's gift of prophecy that's been given to Mother White. and, And he's got a growing conviction that those messages from that gift should mold his life in addition to the lives of Mother White and Percy. And, well, our adventure with Ed has only begun. Ed, at the beginning of his junior year, befriended Percy... And Percy had been invited to live with Mother White. Now, they spent considerable time with Mother White, but Mother White wasn't the only influence in their lives. W.W. Prescott was also a significant factor in the development of these two young men. Actually, we'll be coming back to Prescott in just a little bit. But he was going to factor to be a significant person in Edward's life. Uh, Percy began baking bread. He began to work in the bakery, and it wasn't very long before he became the head baker. In his spare time, Percy worked in the machine shop in order to learn how to be proficient with tools. Ed, on the other hand, in his spare time, played football and baseball there in Battle Creek. And at one point, Ed laid his hand on Percy's arm and said, Percy, we need another man on our baseball team with this kind of muscle. Percy responded not interested. But why? And Percy said, "Well, I can't regard as any activity as recreation suitable for me unless it confers some benefit on somebody else." Well, Ed had to ponder that for a while. But with time, he came to believe the same as his friend. During Edward's senior year at Battle Creek, Percy was, at Mother White's recommendation, engaged in a round-the-world trip as secretary and traveling companion to Elder S.N. Haskell, who was at that time scouting out strategic locations for mission stations. Elder Haskell was also a devout Christian and a staunch advocate of the spirit of prophecy that was given to Mother White. Well, lacking Percy's companionship, Edward started taking notice of some other people. One of those was Sally. Sally was a talented young lady, educated in languages, an artist. She had a sterling character. They both wanted to be teachers. And although the rules of the college at this time strictly forbade any communication between the gentlemen and the ladies, they managed to mutually make it known of their interests. And before the year was out, the faculty gave their permission for the two to court. At the end of the summer following their graduation they were married and Edward accepted the position of principal of the Minneapolis Academy, a school of oh, about a hundred students, many of them as old as themselves. The couple grew to be a powerful working team in education. Now upon his return to Battle Creek Percy had been asked to interrupt his studies to fill an urgent need for a teacher. They needed a history teacher And he studied far beyond the requirements of the course that he was going to teach. He particularly was studying Mother White's counsels on educational reform. And by the time he finished his first year of teaching, he was committed to several of the basic principles of reform that he would champion for the rest of his life. It also appears that with some significant changes in Joseph's parents' attitudes towards education, for this next year, Edward's father moved the entire family to Battle Creek. Two years later, when Union College was being organized, Joseph Sutherland would accept the position of business manager at the new institution and even allowed his daughter to enroll in the school. Edward and Sally were also invited to work at the new school in Nebraska and they packed up their things and moved to Union College, barely having arrived and only partially having unpacked. They and Percy headed for Harbor Springs, Michigan for a teacher's convention that was being held there. Professor Prescott had gathered some 80 Adventist teachers along with others for six weeks of study into the council that Mother White had regarding education in our church. Percy and Edward were once again together there at Harbor Springs and they quickly renewed their friendship. Ed shared of his meeting Sally and the successful year at the Minneapolis Academy. Percy told about his tour with Elder Haskell and of his year of teaching at Battle Creek. Mother White was also at the meetings and was speaking a total of six times on a combination of righteousness by faith and the principles of Christian education. Edward was faced with a number of major decisions during this summer, critical decisions that were going to affect his future. This was the summer when he met his crisis of belief in righteousness by faith. It was also when his attitude toward the testimonies shifted to believing that the counsels from Mother White applied to him as well as whomever they may have been written to. He saw his Christian education in a totally new light now, including a new understanding of Mother White's counsels on practical education. And Percy talked him out of his lingering desire to become a doctor, persuading him instead to take up teaching as a life work. During the meetings there at Harbor Springs. Those that gathered had a relatively relaxed schedule. There were three one-hour presentations in the morning. I don't know how they kept them down to an hour. But they did, and then the rest of the day was dedicated to individual study, to meditation, and to prayer. Ed thought that fishing would provide an excellent opportunity for meditation. And he invited Percy to go along with him, also planning to share in supper that they caught, but Percy refused to have anything to do with it. He refused to fish and he refused to catch anything that was caught, calling Ed's attention to the instructions both in the Bible and in the testimonies on the subject of diet. Edward was convinced that God's original diet for humans had included no meat and and he became a vegetarian along with Sally that summer. Ed also confided in Percy during this time that He was wanting to head to the south to establish work there in the southern United States as Mother White had been calling people to do for some time. And Percy, with a typical wisdom beyond his 22 years, responded, I think if we are willing, God will open the way for us to work where he needs us most. Well, where he needs us most was not long in making itself apparent. Before the conference was over, Edward had accepted the call of the General Conference to teach at Battle Creek. So they went back to Union College, repacked their things, traveled to Battle Creek and unpacked. And just before he began teaching he discovered that he was not going to be a teacher of history, but a teacher of Old Testament Bible. So, Ed thought a good place to start Old Testament Bible is in Genesis and it wasn't very far into Genesis before They ran into man's original diet. Soon the students were petitioning for vegetarian options in the cafeteria. And Edward was called into the matron's office along with the president. Well, he didn't make an argument, but he also didn't back down from the principles that he was sharing with the the students. And this also brought him to the attention of the general conference leadership. After only one year at Battle Creek, With Prescott's encouragement, Ed was asked to be the principal at a new college to be opened in Walla Walla, Washington. Prescott would be the president of the college, but he lived in Michigan, so for practical purposes, it was Edward's responsibility to get the school going that first year. So in his first five months, Edward needed to attend camp meeting in Seattle, create a curriculum for the college, produce a catalog, find and hire qualified teachers, recruit some students, and oversee the construction workers as they were building the school buildings. On opening day, December 7, 1892, there were 91 students, 10 teachers ready to start school. By the end of the school year, enrollment was over 160 and just for comparison, the University of Washington, which at this time had been in operation for over 30 years, had an enrollment of 42. Things were still a bit rough though. The building wasn't finished. Construction progressed only as the funds were available and Edwards strenuously avoided debt. The only heat in the building was from two stoves. One was in the chapel and the other, that's not a stove, there it is, the other was in the kitchen. And it turned out, at least for the first meal, that it didn't work. All they could get was smoke, not heat. So the first meal in the cafeteria consisted of white crackers and milk. And this cafeteria was the first in the denomination to be all vegetarian. There was only one bathroom and one tub in each dormitory. The staff wrote to the general conference describing the situation and asking for help. A reply came back with detailed instructions on how to take a bath in a basin of water. The school promptly purchased basins for all of the dorm rooms. The second year that Ed was at Walla Walla, he was given the title of president. There was also a new staff member. Bessie Gras interrupted her studies at Battle Creek, similar to what Percy had done a few years earlier, and she traveled to Walla Walla to help out. She came on the condition that she would not be asked to be the preceptress. I find in Portuguese that word is still good but in English we don't use it much. It's something akin to the women's dean. Not exactly, but close. Well upon arrival Edward promptly asked her to be the preceptress in addition to teaching history and she acquiesced. Bessie proved to be a dynamo and she would be working with Edward to further true education for the rest of her life. Now when Walla Walla was purchased There were more than 350 acres of land that had been donated. But by the time Edward got there, there were only 10 acres remaining. The rest of the property had been sold off to generate the funds to build the buildings. Edward and Sally kept the land situation as a matter of ongoing prayer. And it turns out that economic times were challenging. The farmers that had bought some of the land from the school could not pay their loans And Edward took the opportunity to buy back about 60 acres. Now they had land to be able to run a farm. For some time, Mother White's councils have been repeatedly emphasizing some some consistent themes. One is that the ancient school of the prophets is the model to emulate. That the science of salvation is the greatest of sciences. That fictitious and infidel books should be avoided and that agriculture and the mechanical arts should be taught in all of our schools, that the study of the Bible is of redemptive importance and it's to be emphasized above all the other studies and that students should be helped to become thinkers and be able to reason for themselves from cause to effect. Ed Sutherland had come fully into agreement with W.W. W. Prescott's position after the Harbor Springs meetings that Adventist schools were no longer to have two classes of students, some that are preparing for work in the message and some that are going to go into other business. All should be taught, of, of excuse me, all were to be taught of God and to be workers in God's cause, even while they pursue whatever studies they're pursuing. Prescott held that the dichotomy of religious education and secular education should not exist. Everything should be religious education with the objective of developing the utmost abilities for the labor of God wherever that labor might take you. Well, Ed was very intentional about educating his staff. He held staff retreats where they would study the testimonies on Christian education that were coming from Mother White, who was in Australia, starting Avondale at the time. The testimonies were a constant topic of conversation all over campus. The fundamental question with each new letter of counsel was, what is that going to look like here? How are we going to be implementing that principle? Mother White penned around this time, a 39-page tract on the subject of education. It was a plea for urgent, brief preparation of workers, successful missionaries, not mental dyspeptics, to not produce intellectual giants, but to produce people of firm principle. And Edward and his staff began devising and experimenting with short courses for the more mature students that could more quickly grasp the material. And they carefully passed their plans along to Mother White, and to the denominational educational leadership for review and for critique. Of the program that was piloted in 1894, Sutherland wrote, one feature that is encouraging is that a goodly number who are with us this year are men and women of mature mind and good ability, who with a short training can be prepared to do useful work in the field. For this class, we have arranged a special line of work consisting of Bible, history, English language, natural science and sacred music. The work is conducted on such a plan that if the student can remain in school but one year, he will receive a good start and a fair preparation or if circumstances will allow him to return another year, he can take up the same line of work more extreme, extensively than the preceding year. And this work is not for those who are young or who desire to pursue a regular course of study but for those of mature minds who can spend but a short time in school. And then using history as an example, he, instead of spending four years in ancient and then medieval and then modern history, the first year will cover the whole subject. It would not, of course, cover history in detail, but it would rather deal with the philosophy of history, that is, the study of causes and their effects, and thus give the student the key that will unlock all of the dealings of God with man. And then if the student can stay a second year, the history program would lead him over the same ground by going deeper into the subject and developing the principles more extensively. Each year, the basic material would be refreshed in the memory and then dig deeper and yet deeper. And Sutherland readily recognized that not all would be capable of such an accelerated learning, but he reasoned the good student who can do in two years without any greater effort What the slower student must take four years to do should not be kept out of the work. So I'm going to take another quick break here and let's summarize some of the lessons that we're learning. Ed is learning righteousness by faith, a vibrant, growing, trusting relationship with Jesus, just like Percy. He's learning about true recreation, just like Percy. He's learning about a vegetarian diet, just like Percy. He's learning how to move a lot. That was not like Percy. But he's learning how to follow the counsel from Mother White. Counsel about having plenty of land for a school in a country location. About the need for agriculture associated with all of our schools. For character, as well as for food. He's learning to avoid debt. He's learning to implement a work-study plan of all-round education and he's learning to implement short courses for mature students. He's learning to engage his entire staff in the study of the councils that we have. And he's learning then to move forward with education as a united team. In February of 1897, Edward had been at Walla Walla for a little more than four years when he presented a report Of what was happening there at the college to the general conference session. The conference also heard reports from Union College and Battle Creek College both of which were experiencing significant declines. Battle Creek was struggling at the time under a significant debt of ninety thousand dollars. In today's currency that would be a little over 2.5 million. Clearly God had been able to bless young Edwards efforts at Walla Walla, and the church voted to move that leadership and the reforms that were being implemented there to its flagship institution. At the age of 32, Edward, along with Sally and Bessie joined Percy back at Battle Creek the next school year. He was about to find out that reform is not so easily implemented in an established program as it is in a new one. Battle Creek was located on only seven acres in the middle of the city, and Edward and Percy desperately wanted to move the school into the country to comply with the principles that Mother White had been sharing. But the personal counsel from Mother White, at this particular point, was wait. So while they waited, they did what they could. Percy started a debt relief organization. He began publishing a paper called The Advocate on Educational Reform. Edward wrote a sizable book on educational history called Broken Cisterns, Living Fountains. As a result, the teachers came firmly behind the discontinuance of degrees at Battle Creek. Edward and Percy plowed up the tennis court and the baseball field to create garden space. Not too long after that someone donated the money for an 80-acre farm Of course, the farm was a distance away from the college, but at least some students could be there and work and to help earn their way through school. And the food produced on the 30 acres of orchards and the 50 acres of gardens helped for the operations of the school. There was also a great deal of opposition among the students, but a great deal of support. Revival swept through the school. And there were some notables who stood firmly behind Edward and Percy on the side of reform, among them Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the director of the sanitarium, and the new chairman of the Battle Creek College board, Alonzo T. Jones. This would prove to be highly encouraging right now, but would be problematic in the years to come, as we will see. Edward was also receiving strong support and counsel from W.W. W. Prescott, a mentor for over a decade and a former Battle Creek president turned General Conference Educational Secretary. Prescott had organized the Harbor Springs meeting and he was firmly behind the educational reforms of Mother White. But there was yet another more reliable confidence that Mary Lamson, who arrived at Battle Creek during Sutherland's leadership there and after whom a women's dorm was later named, shared this particular account. On the second floor of West Hall was a little two-room apartment which was vacant, except for a few chairs with cushions in front of them. I knew what happened in that room. I knew that those teachers went in there to pray. I knew that Professor Sutherland and Professor McGann spent hours there, agonizing with the Lord that the right thing might be done. More than once, a student would come to me and say, Miss Lampson, somehow we go on tiptoe past that room. For we hear the voice of prayer, and we feel it's a sacred room and a sacred corridor. And we did feel that way, all of us. We felt that decisions, weighty decisions, were being made. And we felt that the Lord had set apart that place for prayer and for victory. In 1898, Ed was getting letters from several churches requesting teachers for their children. Mother White had penned that a school should be established if there were no more than six children to attend. In that fall, Battle Creek had begun a normal program, a teacher training program, but the requests couldn't wait. Edward went to the chapel meeting with the students with three letters of request and asked if there might be anyone willing to interrupt their studies to go meet the needs of one of these churches. Nobody responded. Nobody responded. The second day, he went back with the same inquiry, and first one and then two more young ladies stood. By Christmas, seven schools were operating with students volunteering to interrupt their studies. By March, there were 13. During the next year, 57 schools were organized. By the fall of 1900, two years later, almost 150 church schools were in operation. Edward and Percy were also actively working on the college debt that they had inherited from prior administrations. In the spring of 1900, Mother White dedicated the royalties of Christ's object lessons to the relief of the schools. $57,000 worth were sold in the first year in America. The Battle Creek students had raised almost $6,000 the year before towards debt retirement. Edward and Percy began making secret trips into the country to locate a farm where they could move the school. They found three farms adjacent to one another for sale for a total of about 274 acres. Mother White was making plans to retire in Australia, but her messages were still coming back to America. And for the moment, the counsel to the boys regarding a move was still waiting. So let's do another quick check on progress of what we're learning here. Ed's learning to be patient. Because doing the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The move will come. Be committed. The battle may rage around you, but we know who's in control. So do the right thing. And to grow things. It's good for character as well as for food. Consult experience. It shortens the learning curves. Be persistent. Sometimes you have to ask more than once. And avoid debt. Retire it with a good attitude, even if you didn't create it. And pray intensely. Then Mother White announced unexpectedly that she was returning to America... She determined that she would attend the February 1901 General Conference in part because of things that had been revealed to her about problems that needed to be firmly met here. She addressed that conference on several subjects, among them, the relocation of the school. And after her comments on the subject, the General Conference Committee met and voted to purchase rural property to which they could move the college. Mother White approved of the description of the farms that had been found And the next year, classes began in a new location in Berrien Springs, Michigan, with a new name, Emmanuel Missionary College. Since there were only a few small buildings on the new campus, classes were held here in the recently vacated courthouse and jail. Through the winter, they built several small cottages on the new property, which were occupied right away. They looked something like this. They became married student housing, and they were essentially one-room efficiencies very efficient, for they had no electricity and no heat. After all, those are the conditions that you're going to find when you go into mission service. Percy's wife, Ida, gave her entire inheritance to help start the construction on campus. Buildings were only built as there were funds available. Progress on the new campus was obvious and rapid, but opposition to the educational reforms continued to run strong. Enrollment had dropped and even though predicted, it was a problem. Ed's friendships with Dr. Kellogg and A.T. Jones had been helpful for a time, but they were falling out of favor with the church leadership over other issues, and they were no longer assets. With Mother White's support, Ed narrowly avoided being fired by the board. Percy's wife, Ida, who had always been somewhat delicate, took ill in part from her stress over the criticism that her husband was experiencing. She died during the union conference meetings in May of 1904, leaving Percy with two small children. Percy and Edward had had enough. They tendered their resignations. Before school was out, Ed had indeed gone south. He met with Mother White near Nashville on Edson White's Paddlewheel Floating Evangelistic Center, called the Morning Star. They started upriver to pick up Percy, but they had mechanical problems along the way. Ed recognized the place as Neely's Bend, near Larkin Springs. Mother White wished to see a farm that was nearby. Ed had already looked at it, and he wasn't interested in seeing it again, but he agreed to accompany Mother White. The place looked worse than he had remembered. But Mother White seemed enamored with it. Why, it looks like a place I've seen in vision. And Ed's heart sank. No sooner had they picked up Percy, than Mother White called Ed and Percy to her cabin. Well, Brother McGann, I saw your farm today, and I walked all around it. I'm convinced God wants you and Ed Sutherland to have that place. It's the kind of place that's been shown to me in vision. What do you think of it? I think of it as little as I can. It's too big, and it's all run down, and we don't have the money. Well, I'm sorry, because it seems to me the Lord intends you shall have that place. A few days later, Ed and Percy returned to the farm. And Ed shared with Percy, Oh, I wish we had some honorable and Christian way to get out of this thing without showing a lack of faith in the testimonies from the Lord. They wrestled with their decision for the rest of the day. But towards sunset, Percy summed it up. Ed, we're in it. And we're in it voluntarily. Mrs. White is with us. God is leading us. He will show us the way. They shared their decision with Mother White. And she showed great pleasure. I'll do anything I can to help you. Tell your story to the people. They will help you. I will recommend your work. And I will come on your board if you wish and this last statement holds great significance, for it's the only board she ever served on, and she served on it until the year prior to her death. Ed went north to consult with his Aunt Nell, his mother's sister, and a fiery redhead known by most as Mother D. But most importantly, she was a keen businesswoman. She thought the idea was harebrained. But noting Ed's determination to follow Mother White's counsel, she agreed to accompany Ed by train back down to Nashville. A welcoming party met them at the train station that included Mother White. When they heard that the, place had, the price had been raised, another thousand dollars, Mother D said, "Well, I'm glad we're not going to take it. And Mother White replied, glad? Lad, do you think I'd let the devil beat me out of the place for a $1,000? Pay the $1,000, it's cheap enough. Then she turned to Mother D. Nell, you think you're almost old enough to retire. But if you'll cast in your lot with this work, if you'll look after these boys and guide them and support them in what the Lord wants them to do, the Lord will renew your youth And you will be able to do more in the future than you have done in the past. Immediately, McGann Sutherland and Mother Dee drove the nine miles out to the Ferguson place to meet with Mother Sally, one of the owners. The documents needed to be signed in front of a notary, and so they took Miss Sally and her husband the nine miles back into Nashville, where Miss Sally waffled on the decision whether or not to to agree to sell to Yankees. She finally grabbed a pen and signed. McGann handed her the down payment check. The boys took their papers and quickly left before she could change her mind. Mother White later said, You will never know how many angels it took to help you get it. The Fergusons did not immediately vacate the property. People had to stay wherever they could find. The servants' quarters upstairs above the carriage house were called Probation Hall. If you could endure its rigors, you could handle anything else Madison was going to throw at you. And until the Fergusons left, the downstairs housed servants and mules and horses and smoked hams and rats and mice and flies and... kinds of vermin. The place was cleaned up over time and all of the pioneers took their turn in the upstairs bedroom apartment as did incoming students later on. The faculty voted themselves a stipend of $13 a month. Ten years later they would go on record as saying that they were richly blessed to still be getting their $13 a month. That, in spite of the fact that the effective buying power had shrunk by almost 20% during the time. The first year at Madison, they had corn and cows, and they brought some canned fruit with them from EMC. In addition to the staple cornbread and buttermilk, they had milk toast. Milk toast, that's chunks of toasted bread in a bath of skimmed milk. Now, for variety, someone introduced a new dish called brewis to the diet. Brewis was a delicacy that consisted of smaller pieces of toast in a bath of skimmed milk. And when the diet seemed monotonous, Ed would remind everyone that the children of Israel ate manna For 40 years. Part of every day was spent in study and a part of the day in practical activities. The goal was to produce self-governing students that were literate, who could grow their own food, who could build their own buildings, who could deal with the daily challenges of farm and school and church. And then they could go and start their own schools and many of them did within the first few years of operation. Following the pattern of what had been done in Michigan, by 1909, Madison had sent scores of students into the American South to propagate the education and the health outreach that had been begun on the campus. It was decided to invite those representatives back from what were called the units to come to Madison and to share what was going on in their corner of God's work. It was such a success that they resolved to continue the practice every year. By 1910, things had started to settle down a little bit. The worst of the growth pains were, were subsiding, and Ed decided that it was time for him to go back to school and get that medical degree. Quite by surprise, at the last minute, Percy decided to join him. And no sooner had they graduated from the fledgling college of medical, ev- had they graduated, than the fledgling college of medical evangelists in California, that is now known as Loma Linda University, was calling for Percy's support. Percy didn't want to leave, but he felt that the call of the brethren could not be ignored. He left the school that he loved dearly, never to return for more than a short visit. And in grief, Ed said of Percy's decision, this is like tearing asunder bone and marrow. But putting the best face on it that they could, the Madison family felt that they had established an outpost in California by sending the McGann family. They had invested very deeply in the College of Medical Evangelists. About this same time, Lida Funk Scott joined the Madison family. She was a wealthy heiress, and she adopted the simple lifestyle of the workers there, and she dedicated her efforts and resources to visiting and encouraging those units. But we'll spend a little more time talking about her later. For now, let's do another quick review. What have we been learning? We've been learning to follow the counsel of the Lord, to trust in Mother White's testimonies, and to enlist the support of experience. We've learned to persevere with strict economy and we've learned to propagate the work to other places. There's a multitude of other stories that I would love to share about faith building like in 1908 when smallpox came to Madison. Dr. Lillian, Percy's new companion reported the situation and the campus was promptly quarantined. The death rate from smallpox was typically hovering around 30%. This hardly seems encouraging, but but wait. There were eight cases that were being treated on campus. Mother Dee and her nurse helpers treated those eight individuals without the loss of one. The Nashville medical community took note of the quality of care that had been given and of its effectiveness, and the sanitarium work as a result began to grow rapidly. In 1938, an article about the college was printed in Reader's Digest. Later that year, Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady of the United States, interviewed Dr. Brelliere from Madison when she stopped over in Nashville and she wrote about the college in her own syndicated column. That year, they received over 5,000 applications and inquiries. Then there's the drought of 1943. In response to sincere, unified, persistent prayer, God saw fit to send rain that fell only on Neely's Bend. It was another two weeks before the surrounding area received any precipitation. And we've been following the path of Ed Sutherland. I've heard it recently stated that a reformer doesn't ever start out trying to be a reformer. They simply start out trying to be true to revelation and to duty. Being true to duty may well lead to reform for that individual and for others whom that individual influences. And Ed Sutherland was no different. He didn't strike out to change the face of education or of Adventism, although by pursuing true ministry, he accomplished both. He was a visionary, grasping the potential of the true counsel coming from Mother White. And he was an inspirational leader, who inspired others to pursue that same vision without hesitation and without compromise. Percy came into Ed's life relatively early. And he proved to be a balancing, moderating partner, tempering enthusiasm and channeling energy. He he committed to service of the Savior who was so committed to him and he was a persuasive speaker, an effective fundraiser, a capable leader in his own right, essentially saving the College of Medical Evangelists from an early demise and becoming a significant part of the leadership of that institution, which is now Loma Linda. His move was consistent with his commitment to Mother White's councils. She said the church should have a school where youth could be trained for medical service without being subjected to worldly philosophies along the way, and Percy Now an M.D. was qualified to step in and to fill that need of the fledgling college while not compromising the viability of the program back in Tennessee. Even Ed admitted that the move was needed, even if devastatingly painful. Mother D. was as committed to truth and to revelation as were the boys. Her financial skills were well recognized as is evidenced by her assignments as the treasurer of the Nebraska Conference and the South African Conference before returning home to take up responsibilities at Emmanuel Missionary College. Strongly opposed to the purchase of the Nashville property at first, she never turned back after hearing Mother White's admonition to look after the boys. While her resources made possible the acquisition of the property and her business acumen kept the program afloat through its early development, She wasn't above manning a fly swatter as the need arose, which apparently it did often. She worked with the Madison program until her death in 1937. Now, when the team began to assemble on the old Ferguson place, the place was far from a well-oiled machine. There were only a few dedicated faces, one of which I can't even show you. His name was Elmer Brink. But Elmer was probably one of the most critically important individuals. Elmer, you understand, had his duty like all the rest. Mother D ran the skillet and the broom, Percy ran the farm, Ed ran the buddy, butter churn. Elmer took care of the cows. And you see, without the cows, there would be no milk. And without the milk, there would be no cream. And without the cream, there would be no butter. And without the butter, there would be no cash. Madison may never have survived its first years, were it not for Elmer, taking care of the cows. And had Madison not survived, our history of supporting ministry would be drastically different. Elmer aptly represents a multitude of dedicated, skilled workers, each sacrificially applying the gifts and talents that God has given whatever place of ministry God's put them. Undeterred by challenges that may arise, they faithfully do day-to-day the things that bring success to the ministry, allowing others to step into the spotlight, content to know that they've been faithful. This likely describes the majority of workers, whether in individual or in institutional ministry. Elizabeth Bessie DeGraw interrupted her studies at Battle Creek to go to Walla Walla and help out. Bessie proved to be a dynamo and would wind up working with Ed for the rest of her life, moving with him to Battle Creek, EMC, and then to Tennessee. She completed her college education as a part-time student in addition to holding down a number of positions at the school. She effectively assumed administration of the college while Sutherland and McGann were in medical school. A capable administrative assistant, much of what Edward accomplished in research and in publishing would not have ever made it to print were it not for her editorial and transcription skills. After Sally died, she and Ed did get married just before he passed to his rest. She continued to live at Madison for the rest of her life. Josephine Gotzian, you might remember, put up Ed when he was canvassing that first year. Josephine and her husband were in a train accident a few years before she met Edward. Her husband was killed. She broke her back and went to Battle Creek to heal. And that's where she learned of the Advent message. Upon her return, she began hosting canvassers. She corresponded with Mother White while she was in Australia. And roughly around the time Ellen White returned from Australia, she sold her valuable estate in Minneapolis, and she headed to the West Coast. Josephine Gautzian made sizable donations to the Portland Sanitarium and to the White Memorial Hospital in East Los Angeles. She split the purchase price of the Paradise Valley Sanitarium property with Mother White, providing half of the funds until the conference could, provide the, could return the funds and buy the property back from them. And while I have no extant document to support this, it's my personal belief that Mother White was true to her word that she would recommend the work of the boys to the people, Josephine Gotzian moved from California to Madison, Tennessee. She made her home there at Madison, and her house housed the first patients for what was to become the sanitarium. She provided the means for the construction of some of the early campus buildings, and including the first assembly house. And she lived there at Madison until her death. Lyda Funk Scott was heiress to the Funk and Wagnall's Encyclopedia fortune. After spending some time at Battle Creek, she thought she'd go visit the Madison program that she had heard about and she liked what she saw. She stayed, adopted the simple lifestyle, and poured her inheritance into the development of multiple small units and larger ministries like Madison and Loma Linda. Her personal ministry was encouraging the units that were springing up from Madison with her presence, and with her advice, and with her means. In 1927, she established the Layman Foundation to carry on that mission. The purpose of Madison was to train young people in their relationship to God, in their intellectual potential, and in practical skills for service to others so that they could, in turn, go and start similar schools, clinics, and institutions, spreading the gospel wherever God planted them. Several of those units still exist today, many of them operating within the organized church. Others continue to operate in those, under the self-supporting model, relieving the organized work of the financial responsibility while moving forward the mission of the church, training workers to spread the gospel. Many of these units are now members of the E.A. Sutherland Education Association, which continues to grow both domestically and internationally. The Lehman Foundation continues to be a holding corporation for the properties of several of the supporting ministries. And in 2002, it launched the E.A. Sutherland Education Association to continue much of the work of encouragement and support to the educational units. Issei currently provides support services to 15 member schools located in three countries on three continents. In 1909, Madison had sent scores of students into the American South to propagate the education and health outreach that had begun. It was decided to invite them back to share what was going on in their corner of the work and over 150 individuals came to that meeting It was such a success that they decided to keep on meeting every year. By 1947, what was then known as the self-supporting work had grown to the place where a more formal communication channel between lay ministries and the church were needed. And with the help of Ed Sutherland in his retirement, ASI was born. And the units are still getting together. They get together every year to report how God has been leading and how he's been blessing. The Lehman Foundation's focus moved over time towards its role in holding properties and in 1983, Outpost Centers International was created to facilitate the growth of self-supporting work, especially rurally-based urban-focused ministries, networking existing projects into helping train and strengthen leaders in supporting ministry, much as Lydia Scott did for so many years. And ministry rarely happens in isolation. Ed Sutherland anchored a team which the Lord had assembled to pioneer a different mindset of ministry which continues to this day. Lively stones build it up into a spiritual house. We would do well to remember that except the Lord build the house, we labor in vain to build it. I'd like to close my remarks with these words from Lida Scott. She was reporting to the representatives assembled to the units in nineteen thirty four. I'm now quoting. Recently, some graduates of Madison College have had real experience in helping establish a unit in Alabama, working in cooperation with the Mississippi-Alabama Conference. None of them are promised salaries. These they must earn for themselves. Two others of our graduates have gone to two little church schools in needy Mississippi areas as an encouragement to those who are considering the self Supporting cooperative plan of units, I would like to say this. There are units needing reinforcements. There are places still available to earnest groups of people capable of working together effectively in cooperation and able to support themselves. The Lord has faithful men with money being prepared in hidden places who will respond to his call in the fullness of time. And to illustrate... I came across one of these hidden ones she said to me if some with vision and a will and the muscle will respond I will furnish the money she could not get young folks with the will to work and the determination to stick it out through thick and thin this woman had been waiting and praying For more than 20 years. It is easier. To raise means. Than it is to raise men. The night is coming. When no man can work. Before the shadows deepen into darkest midnight. The world has ever seen some must answer the call saying, here am I. Send me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of being in your service. And we too keenly feel the need of being connected to you that you might direct the work that will bring honor to your name. Regardless of our place, we ask you to make us lively stones, each of us fitted for our particular role in your work. True, some may be keystones, easily visible there at the top of the doorway, and yet others... Foundation stones that may never again see the light of day once set. Yet everyone critical to the success of bringing the gospel to the world as you so anxiously desire. I pray that you will help those of us who have been set to be faithful in our place. That you will bring the workers that are needed so desperately. And that have developed the character that will bring success into your work. That it might move forward more rapidly. Above all, we wish that you might be honored. And that you might look good before the world. And toward that end, we're asking once again for the infusion of your Spirit. And we thank you for hearing our need and for responding to our prayer. In the name of our Savior, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse